Are you ready for good talk? Sometimes the best YouTube is less YouTube. That's why YouTube reminds teens when it's time to take a break. Get help managing your kids and teens' time online at youtube.com slash myfamily. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Good Talk. Special day here on Good Talk. There's no question about that. Uh, We were all hit by the news last night about Brian Mulroney passing. You know, an icon on the political landscape of Canada, there's no, uh, no question about that either. It was through the, certainly through the 1980s and the early 1990s, with some big thinking and big projects and big at times scandals as well. Brian Mulroney faced them all and dealt with them all in one way or another, um, and, and at times at some uh, a political price for himself. But nevertheless, I figured that we're going to spend the hour talking about uh, today. There were other things that happened uh, on the landscape this week, but really they seem kind of trivial uh, compared with discussing the impact this one person had on Canada and Canada's place in the world, as well as the issues at home. So that's what we're going to do. Chantelle's away this week. She's uh, hiking somewhere, I believe, in Iceland for a couple of weeks. Good for her. Um, Susan Delacord from the Toronto Star is with us uh, for her her thoughts on Mulroney because she, like me, covered Mulroney for a good amount of time and had some remarkable interviews, one especially, uh, uh, with uh, Mulroney uh, post Meech Lake. And Bruce is here, uh, of course, as he always is. And Bruce uh, worked with Mulroney and for Mulroney at, uh, at different times during uh, Mulroney's political career. So... Uh, an opportunity to uh, to hear some thoughts uh, from both of them, um, including some, you know, personal reflections, anecdotes, if you will, about Brian Mulroney. But let's uh, let's start with some uh, some kind of general assessments of where we are as we w- get up on this day, reflecting on his time in office and his time post office. Um, Bruce, why don't you start? Yeah, let me just start by saying hi to Susan. I'm so happy to see you as part of this conversation. Uh, I always love talking with Chantal, obviously, but uh, I've known Susan for a long, long time covering politics. She's one of the very best journalists I've ever had the opportunity to get to know. And I know that she has a lot to say and and a lot of reflections about Brian Mulroney, as do I. Um, Peter, I'm so happy also that we're having this conversation. It's a sad occasion, but I'm happy that we're having it because in part... Um, over the last few years, as we sort of see how society consumes information, it sometimes makes me wonder if um, from one generation to the next, people really understand as much about our political history, even our short-term political history, as would be ideal. And uh, so I think it's good for people to have as many conversations as possible about Brian Mulroney, who in my lifetime was uh, an extraordinary uh, contributor to our political life, one of, uh, if not the most effective and productive uh, prime ministers of my life, certainly the most charismatic uh, leader of our country during that period of time. And that's not to say there was no competition for that. Uh, but in my view, his charisma was, as I saw somebody uh, use the term off the charts, um, it really was. Now, he also had 
the opposite effect as politicians do on some people. He left office uh, with a you know a good deal of uh, political scar tissue and people who didn't like him. Uh, I was never one of them. I always thought that uh, his flaws were his flaws. Everybody has flaws, but his charms were enormous. Um, and his uh, he wasn't just charismatic. He was extraordinarily important from a policy standpoint. Uh, we'll spend some time talking about those things. But for me, uh, sometimes I use the, the metaphor like that some people think that politics is about math. Some people think it's about chemistry. Brian Mulroney was a chemistry uh, practitioner and uh, without equal in my lifetime uh, watching politics in Canada. Your opening thoughts, Susan? I, it's so hard to just pin them down to one. You know, I, I didn't arrive in Ottawa until 1988, so he'd been in power for four years by then. So I had I had been one of those people on the outside, and I was not a fan of Meech Lake, I think you both will remember. Um, so I, I think I got on Brian Mulroney's nerves, um, certainly. <laughs> uh, not intending to, but um, it, I was young and new, and I had strong opinions, and I, I was lucky enough to work for a Globe and Mail that encouraged that. That um, the uh, the editor at the time, William Thorsell, a very good friend of Brian Mulroney's, and to his great credit, he wanted to make sure that I was covering Meech because he wanted all sides represented in the paper. So I thought, you know, a lot of people are talking about how gracious Mulroney was in private to them. I will say that um, he was that way with me too, even though I got on his nerves. So. Uh, I think, um, I don't know whether I'd tell the story in the middle or <laughs> Brian Mulroney wrecked my birthday. <laughs> this, this was surreal. He was uh, elected leader on June 11th, 1983, which was my birthday. So I didn't do anything for my birthday. And then as the years went on, he always did something on to commemorate. <laughs> I think the anniversary was, so I could never go out or, do things. So you alluded to this famous interview, roll the dice interview. That was my birthday. I actually <laughs> spent my birthday with Brian. And then Mulroney for a while denied that he said this. This was a major um, upset. Uh, and I, I wrote a column uh, a bit for him I when his memoirs came out, which I would encourage everybody to read. I don't know if you guys have how recently you've checked them, but they are my favorite prime ministerial memoirs of any because he kept a diary right. and the, the, the thousand page tome keeps going into events that I was covering. And you're seeing Brian Mulroney writing about what was going on, even to the point of, um, of having a conversation with Joe Clark and going to the bathroom and writing in his journal. And all of that is, is in there. So anyway, in his, in, very graciously, again, in his memoirs, he takes full blame for that roll the dice uh, thing. But um, just to put it in context, we'll go through all to... the ways in which. But it it went on even after he was not prime minister anymore. You know, there is always he did write Reagan's uh, eulogy the day of my birthday. It it's there was something with June eleventh and me and Brian Mulroney that was star-crossed and funny. <laughs> just, just to put that roll the dice comment in in uh, context, that was about Meech Lake. Uh, it, right. it, was, it, it was at that time, uh, 
one of his greatest victories that he'd yeah. got this deal on Meech Lake. It was a great victory until he sat down with you and some of your colleagues from the Globe, and he yeah. came up with the roll the dice comment in terms of uh, how he pulled this off, and and it, it and it led to the unraveling of the deal, basically. Uh, yeah, it, 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 I'll, I'll tell it just because it, it's so very Mulroney. It's such a, I remember Frank McKenna talked about this too, and David Peterson, they all knew what Mulroney was doing. So the, we just had this long week, which you all remember, um, uh, staying up all night, these negotiations at the old train station here in in Ottawa. And the Globe and Mail was relaunching the newspaper, uh, a, a big major design relaunch. And Brian Mulroney, feeling great about having saved Meech at the end of this week, granted us an interview for this. So it was me, Graham Fraser, Jeffrey Simpson. And I said to Mulroney in the interview, you were accused of letting this build to a crisis. And in his very typical way, he puffs himself up and he says, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. I knew I planned this. I said, that's the day we're going to roll the dice. <laughs> and in trying to defend himself, probably taking a few liberties with the truth, I don't actually think he planned it um, that way. Uh, he got himself in trouble. And I remember Gary Dewar was then um, just a, a leader in Manitoba, a minority government, a, a leader of the NDP phoned me up the next morning. He goes, do you know what you have done? And he said, <laughs> Elijah Harper and all the indigenous people here in Manitoba are walking around with the Globe and Mail, holding it rolled up as a fist, right? That this thing is in trouble. And I went, uh-oh, uh, that wasn't really what I planned. But, um, you know, Peter, can I just pick up on that and, sure. and uh, drop in a thread about um it was a little bit his approach to uh, to politics that he was willing to take risks. And uh, um, my wife Nancy Jameson, who knows more about politics than I'll I'll ever know, she and I were talking about Brian last night, and she reminded me of um, Lyndon Johnson, who is her favorite U.S. president, and in particular his his characterization of what is the the, the purpose of having power unless you're going to use it. And I think Mulroney decided to become that a prime minister. I don't know if he, if he started that way at the very beginning of his time in office, but I think he certainly developed that, that sense that you're there for a reason. If you have political capital, you should spend it rather than what are you saving it for? It's no good to you after you're in office. And I think that was to his great credit, but on the role, and it does make, somebody who thinks that way willing to roll the dice uh whether or not that's the most apt or or politically savvy term to tell to a room of the country's leading journalists that's a separate question but he did in some ways do that again with the charlottetown accord and the referendum um he was aware that a referendum is a difficult thing to win on a simple proposition and that it would be difficult for him to win that referendum, looking with looking at uh, a, a policy that had, I think, six pieces, five or six pieces. I'm trying to remember the specific elements of the Charlottetown Accord, but there were a number of different things. It was a, about Senate reform and about the treatment of Quebec, and and um, you only needed to be against one of them. Okay. Yeah, it was, <laughs> that it, was the problem. It, it was easy to see, having looked at the way in which referendums and petitions. 
um, and initiative campaigns work in other places that if you didn't start with a very high level of support, you were unlikely to finish with the level that you needed. I think he decided that it was important to put the question to people. I think he thought that his own campaign skills and his persuasion skills were going to be enough to sell it. And I think he was, again, willing to put at risk at least not, I don't think the country, but I think some of his political capital. And I think it was probably to his credit that he did that um, because he, he never stopped trying to bridge the divide between English and French Canada as he saw it and in the way that it was at that period of time. Um, and uh, he could be a divisive figure, but he always tried to be a unifying figure, I think, in terms of his role in the country. Let me um, let me tell a little story, and it's his own story, actually, um, because I, I thought of it when Susan was talking about his, her relationship with him. There was tense and difficult uh, at the beginning and through the periods when uh, when certain reporting was going on. But over time, he guess, he basically moved on, and he admitted certain things, as he did about uh, Susan's story. But in his later years, he recognized the fact of how divisive he'd been on some issues and how some people truly disliked him, hated him. And, uh, you know, we saw the results of some of that in the 93 election, even though he wasn't running, there was a lot of hangover from his time. But eventually he got around to conceding that there were a lot of people that didn't like him. And he would, <laughs> he would tell the story um, about a period about a month after he left office. And it was a classic Mulroney story. You know, don't assume that it's true, but it was a great story to tell at a, in, in, in a speech situation. Um, but he would tell the story about how some guy walked up to 24 Sussex Drive, the prime minister's residence, a month after he'd left and said to the RCMP uh, guard, um, I'm here to see uh, Prime Minister Mulroney. And the Mountie says, I'm sorry, Prime Minister Mulroney doesn't live here anymore. He's, in fact, not the Prime Minister anymore. And the guy says, okay, fine, and he leaves. Next night, same guy, same Mountie, same question. I'm here to see Prime Minister Mulroney. The Mountie says, no, 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 you didn't hear me. He's not the Prime Minister anymore. He doesn't live here. The guy says, oh, okay, fine, leaves. Next night, same guy, same Mountie, same question. I'm here to see Prime Minister Mulroney. The Mountie says, listen, buddy, I told you two nights in a row, and now the third night, I'm not going to bother with you again. He is no longer the Prime Minister. Why do you keep asking me this question? The guy says, I just love hearing the answer. (laughs) (laughs) That Mulroney could tell that story on himself, show how far he'd come uh, in terms of recognizing the divisive nature that some things he did caused, and there's no doubt about that. Um, but I, I have a good on a day like today, you tend to look beyond some of those things. I look at the international stage. I'm I, I'm a huge uh, admirer of his on the South Africa question, which was really him and Joe Clark to a degree, um, but it was really Mulroney who pushed so hard uh, for that and went up against two titans at the time, Reagan and Thatcher. And I strongly believe, and I think you can make the argument, that Mandela would not have been released when he was, as a result uh, partly of, uh, of Mulroney's uh, work, and that apartheid wouldn't have ended when it did without the support of Brian Mulroney and his pushing of Thatcher and Reagan. So I, I, I think Canadians 
for lots of other reasons, in terms of their feelings about Mulroney, don't recognize that one enough. Um, Susan, you wanted to pull something. You wanted to add something after that joke, that Mulroney self-told joke. Yeah, just a, uh, um, so we talk a lot, you guys and me privately, and on in the air about the toxicity of Parliament, mm. and it is pretty bad. But I would say, you know, the inaugural period of that, uh, the modern form, was the early years of Mulroney and the Rat Pack. You know that that was pretty rough. Um, yep. uh, the likes of Sheila Copps, Brian Tobin, Don Boudria, people who, and Mulroney was shocked at at how low they went. So years later, I was doing a magazine profile of Brian Tobin, and Brian Tobin had apologized to Mulroney for the days of the Rat Pack and for being against free trade in 1988. And I wanted to know what Mulroney thought. And I assumed then Mulroney no longer still didn't speak to me. You know, if I wanted to know something about Mulroney, I would phone somebody like Luke Lavois or Elian McDonald and say, can you just get a, a comment from Mulroney about about this apology? So my husband is home one night, I was away, and the phone rings at our house at 10 o'clock at night, and my husband just about drops the phone because it's Brian Mulroney who wants to talk about Brian Tobin apologizing. We eventually did the interview, and at the end of the interview, this is so Brian, he says, um, you know, once you leave politics, once you're out of it, um, some of the divisions that you had don't seem as important. So he's saying that he and Brian Tobin are are now friends. And he said, uh, he said, you can get past all of the the things that that made that once would have made you crazy. And I said, and that, Mr. Mulroney, is the spirit in which I take this call to me. And he said, and that, Susan, it was the way it was intended. <laughs> and that was me and Mulroney then. I could get him on the phone whenever I wanted after that. Yeah, no, he was quite well, One of the things that uh, that I think we all know about um, Brian Mulroney, and it's more true about him than any of his um, his predecessors that I knew of and, and uh, his successors, is that he knew the power of a personal call, oh. you know, a personal touch. Um he knew how much it was uh, welcomed and how it was received, and he knew how to do it with such grace and uh, humor. It never seemed like it was performative, like somebody had given him a list of things that he had to do and he was kind of working through them or something like that. Um, and in a lot of those situations that I would hear about over the years, they, these were actually very spontaneous things that he uh, just had an instinct for wanting to reach out and touch people. And he especially did when he knew that people were going through difficult things. Um, I don't know how many people from different parties over the years I've heard. Uh, if you get into a conversation with them about Brian Mulroney, they will say, well, there was the time that and something had happened in their family or something was going on in their life. And uh, without having had any expectation that they would ever have a conversation with Brian Mulroney, he would have reached out to them or sent a note. And um, the power of that in politics, in a business, as Susan is saying, that that where tempers fray and, and feelings run hot, um, 
really worked to his advantage. Um, and I don't think he did it for those reasons. I think he did it because as a human being, it made him feel like it was what he should be doing. Uh, but it, I, 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 let me finish that aspect of the story by saying, I remember as um, he was heading towards his, the end of his time in office, and I, he was his polling numbers were absolutely dismal. Some of the worst that I've ever seen. Um, there was no reason to look at those numbers and think that he had even the remotest chance of winning another election if he stayed on as conservative leader. But despite that, his caucus was ready to go. If he said, "Let's go and take those those liberals on," uh, not a, one of them, I don't think, would have said, "No, not with you, sir." They were all ready to go because. He had developed such bonds of affection uh, with them. Yes, they trusted his political skills, but he, I don't think they thought he could win. I think they were ready to go into that battle with him uh, because of the way that he tended to the personal relationships in politics over the years. I want to talk about that and the impact um, that that had on, on the country and that he personally had on, uh, on the country on a, a couple of fronts. But we're going to take our first break. Uh, we'll be right back after this. <laughs> Google's Family Link app helps you create online boundaries for each of your kids so they can explore the internet you want them to explore. Find Family Link and other online safety features for kids and teens at g.co slash families. And welcome back. This is a good talk for this Friday. Susan Dillacourt uh, filling in for Chantelle Bear. Bruce Anderson is here. I'm Peter Mansbridge. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our uh, YouTube channel. Uh, however you're doing all of that, uh, we're glad to have you with us. Um, let me just tell one, uh, one quick story um, about the personal relationship thing. I, You know, I talked very briefly about this last night on The National uh, for the CBC, but I, I wanted to mention it again because I think it's a, it says something about this guy who who reached out, this is Brian Mulroney we're talking about, obviously, uh, who, who reached out at different times in different people's lives uh, and made a difference by that connection and that personal connection that he had with people. One His agriculture minister, after he became Prime Minister uh, was a fellow by the name of John Wise from St. Thomas, Ontario. And I knew John uh, because of uh, relatives who, were, who, who live in that area. Um, in 20, I think it was 13 or 20, uh, 2013, uh, John Wise passed away. And um, Brian Mulrooney, I knew, was in China on some kind of a trade mission or some kind of business venture. This is long after he'd left politics. And I thought, I got to make sure he knows that John passed away. And so I was able to reach out and get through uh, to him to tell him. And he, at that point, didn't know. But he knew he couldn't get back in time for the funeral. So what did he do? He didn't tell anybody this. He just arranged it. And this is the kind of guy he was. He arranged by talking to the minister at the church in St. Thomas, where the funeral service was going to be, to set up kind of a Mickey Mouse audio system that he could phone in to the service <laughs> and do a kind of a bit of a eulogy and a classic Mulrooney eulogy. It wasn't two or three minutes. It was like 20 minutes. And he had that whole room, as he always did when he, when he spoke in a, in a room. 
uh, and he told stories about John. And it had people, you know, in huge gales of laughter and in huge moments of tears. It was a classic Mulroney thing that he'd reached out to do that for a friend. And I think you can talk to people in politics on all sides of the aisle who can relate stories similar to that about how Mulroney went out of his way uh, on certain days for certain people um, to say kind things. Uh, you know, about them. And uh, sorry, Susan, you were going to say? I, I have a, a story. I, I, you guys may know this, whether this is, I, I don't know whether this is apocryphal or not, but I heard that after the 1984 election, which was a blowout victory for him, that the first people he called were the losing liberal candidates, the MPs who had lost their seats. Hmm. And what I was told was he knew the conservatives who had won were had enough reason to be happy that night, but he phoned the losing liberals first and a lot of them never forgot it. You know, like all those years where it got really tense between liberals and Brian Mulroney as a, as it would, there were some veterans from that campaign who never forgot that they got a call from Mulroney that night. Um, I don't know. Have you guys heard that one too? I hadn't heard that, but it does not, it, it, it could be apocryphal, but it certainly could be true. It sounds like the kind of thing that he would do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, you know, not to, uh, not to be critical of any other politicians, but that I haven't met very many politicians who had that kind of instinct to, to yeah. do those kinds of things and the will to do it. You know, there's always lots of competing alternatives. Um, so that to me, that, personal disposition and the courtesies and the and the warmth and the wit i think he was a great storyteller i think he told jokes extraordinarily well um that was a big part of him as as a uh, as a political personage in canada but so too was the policy stuff and i think we want to spend a little bit of time on that at least i wanted to because i in addition to meech lake which i do think was a really important initiative to try to accomplish um that bridging of the divides that had um, that had widened, uh, and I think it was. Uh, I take Susan's point. There were there were flaws with it, and not everybody liked it. Um, but it was it, it it grew out of good intentions. Uh, let me put it that way, at least in my view. And um, but he also did uh, free trade and GST, which were massive, massive undertakings from a political management standpoint. Now. Somebody arrived here from Mars and they said, well, how complicated would it be to change one kind of tax into another kind of tax, which is the manufacturing sales tax of the GST? How hard could that be? Well, it was hard. Uh, it was politically controversial. Uh, and I spent some time working on it. It's one of the reasons why I was working on that uh, with uh, with when Mike Wilson was the finance minister. I was working on Meech Lake when Lowell Murray uh, was the federal provincial relations minister. And that got me closer to what Brian Mulroney was trying to do and how he was going about it and uh, and led to me agreeing to help him and his party uh, for, for a period of time. But I, uh, so I watched how that policy was developed. I watched the political management of it. I tried to give as good advice as I could around it. Uh, but I, I did admire the fact that these were big projects. They were not easy uh, to do. They were big projects, and um, they required such 
discipline and determination. It wasn't always perfect. I'm not suggesting that. It never is. But um, his policy mix stands up. You mentioned apartheid. I agree with that. GST, free trade, um, acid rain. Um, he was a, a big and early proponent of a conservative perspective on the environment. Um, I think he sent uh, my friend Jean Charest down to um, Brazil to uh, Rio for uh, yes. a major environmental uh, announcement. Yeah, it was kind of a a multinational breakthrough moment, and um, so he did a lot on the policy side that that if people weren't alive or attentive to politics when he was prime minister, they should know about because it was no small uh, track record of policy achievements on the domestic side, and obviously significant renown for him in among world leaders as well, which we can talk about too. But didn't Elizabeth May on the environment, didn't she kind of award him the medal as the greenest prime minister ever yeah, in Canada? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. she was a, a big uh, fan of his on that. Um, how did he change the country? Did he change the country? Certainly. Yeah, certainly. The country was changing under him. Uh, as well, too. But I think he was a perfect prime minister for what was happening in the 1980s. You know, that um, politics had become, you guys will remember this, politics had become really fixated on the idea that it had to become more business-like and more business-friendly. You know, there's, um, and I think, you know, that's the, for good or for ill, uh, that was a, a lot of the lefty kind of opposition to him was that he was corporatizing politics. But that was happening around the world. I think he also made us closer to the United States, uh, again, for good or for ill. Um, free trade is definitely the engine of our economy. But our um, Justin Trudeau, I remember he made a very sort of supposed to be sort of a, a, a set piece speech before he became prime minister back when he was just liberal leader. And he said a former prime minister had told him that there is no more important relationship internationally. One of the most important things you can do as prime minister is tend to the Canada-US relationship. And he said that advice did not come to him from his dad. So I figure it was Mulroney who probably told him that. And I, I always found Mulroney's uh, posture toward the current prime minister interesting too. You'll remember, um, he, he said uh, early on, Justin Trudeau, what's not to like? You know, and uh, he came in as an advisor during the uh, NAFTA existential drama with, uh, with Trump. Uh, and I think, I will think of Brian Mulroney. I, I think we do have, we're going to have to talk about Airbus. Like we can't have no, this. That's right. um, but I, I, I will think of Brian Mulroney as emblematic of the Conservative Party as it no longer exists. I'm sorry to say that. I did hear Pierre Polyev saying lovely things about Brian Mulroney yesterday, but um, Brian Mulroney was a form of, you know, progressive conservatism, not afraid to do things on climate, for example, not afraid to reach out across the aisle and phone liberals who had lost, not afraid to um, have a very good relationship with John Turner. I think that continued after, um, also very good friend of Paul Martin's. Um, so I, I, I think of Brian Mulroney as he changed the conservative party 
and I regret that it has changed away from what he did for it because he he made it um, easier for Quebec to be part of the Conservative Party. He he did a lot of things for the Conservative Party that should be exemplars for the Conservative Party of today. Yeah, I think I you know that was the, the first instinct I had in answer to your question, Peter. Is uh, I thought he had changed the country but I don't know exactly where the country is right now and how much it reflects what influence he had. I rather uh, fear that um, some of his most important influences have dissipated. And I, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, but uh, my question is not whether he had an influence in changing the way that the country thought, but whether it's persisted. And for me, um, I kind of grew up more in the Liberal Party. I worked on the Liberal uh, side uh, my first couple of years and first several years in politics. Um, but he created a version of the Conservative Party that um, caught my interest, uh, for which I developed enthusiasm. And it was because he was sensitive to the social programs that Canadians needed and wanted. He was interested in the environmental issues that were important to people uh, across the political spectrum. He obviously came from a business background and he wanted to build strong relationships with the business community. He believed in the importance of remodeling our economy rather than just taking it for granted. And so I think his free trade ambition was really uh, well put. And I think the change on the tax side was also important. When I think about the kinds of um, challenges that he faced on the fiscal side uh, relative to what we see today, uh, he, he took a lot of heat for spending a lot of money. But by today's uh, measure, I don't know that he was one of the more, uh, uh, more happy to spend prime ministers, let me put it that way. But he did, uh, in politics, convey a sense of... Um, you know, both pride in what he did, but also that that idea that you should try to kind of take the temperature down sometimes and bring people together. And I don't see as much of that. What I don't, what what I've always wondered, and I'll I'll leave it on this point, is the the arrival of the Reform Party um, in the context of a Mulroney government, a Mulroney Conservative Party that I thought did quite a lot to support ambitions in the West and to connect with Albertans in particular. Don Mazankowski was an important part of, of Brian Mulroney's government and, um, and Joe Clark obviously was. Um, I don't think he caused the Reform Party to happen, but I think that the fact that the Reform Party happened uh, was the start of a process uh, of a widening of the, of the gap between that Alberta political culture and the the national conservative idea that Susan talked about, which is which is what I also think um, he helped create, but which I think has dissipated somewhat now. Can I just mention, in, in terms of the that list of um, that Susan gave of uh, the sort of reaching out that he did, you know, across the aisle on certain things. The other the other example of that is what he did uh, at the UN by appointing Stephen Lewis, the former oh, Ontario NDP leader, right? Um, to become Canada's ambassador to the UN, which is no small post and was in, incredibly important through the 1980s. And Stephen Lewis has written about some of the meetings he sat in on the South Africa question and where he watched Mulroney. 
um, and the, the sort of common bond the two of them had on on trying to achieve something on South Africa, um, and how those two work together. You know, uh, Susan talked about the, you know, the Rat Pack and the Liberals, the young guns. She named three of them. John Nunziata, I think, was the fourth. Oh, right. Yes. And, and yep. they were, you know, they were a powerhouse in, in the House of Commons, and they, they caused all kinds of problems but uh, for the Conservative government. But I still think the polarization of today is much different than the polarization of those days. I mean, they were great debaters, the Rat Pack, and they you know, were trying to find the soft underbelly of the Conservative Party. Um, but the uh, you know today's is kind of today's polarization is much more bitter, much more destructive uh, that goes on by not just political parties, but in the differences within the country. Then the issues in in those days, which I I tend to think were more about issues where you offered a constructive opposition to what was being put forward, that it wasn't the kind of kind of hate polarization right. that that exists today, um, and I'm just wondering what you know today's leaders can gain from from what happened in those days and was led. In some manner, uh, by Mulroney, but also by you know John Turner to a degree of the Liberal Party and 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 some of the uh, differences that were exhibited in those days. Are, are there lessons from the Mulroney era, or are we just too far gone? Is it just too different now to oh. be be looking back? Such a hard question, Peter, because I really don't want that to be lost. I think what really you know. What Mulroney knew is get on the phone to somebody, you know, and meet somebody where they live. And the best politicians I've seen are the ones who do that. I think what there's a lot of damage done during the years, and, and I, I saw it happen in the last decade or so. Let's not blame Stephen Harper, but I kind of might a bit, um, where they weren't allowed to socialize with liberals. Like there actually edicts went out saying you cannot go to highs which was then the big place. And there were some ministers who didn't listen to that advice, like a John Baird or a, a Jason Kenney. But there was a fear of God that was put into the Conservatives over the last decade, do not traffic or truck with Liberals. And I think that, you know, I I try to live by this myself. I want to tell a funny journalism story too, actually. Um, I live by this myself, and I think it's it's good discipline for. I never write anything about anybody that I wouldn't say to their face. It's just, um, I think it's it's. I think there's a lot of people right now writing things on social media, or in commentary and opinion that they wouldn't be able to say to somebody's face. And I think that's the lesson I would like to see. That you know, remember that these people you 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 might meet them on the street after. Can I tell a, story, a couple of funny stories about Bob Fife? Because we say, should say, <laughs> Fife and Brian Mulroney, I think he will tell you, I think now they're fine. But Bob Fife uh, practices a kind of journalism that Brian Mulroney, I think, dubbed gotcha journalism. And Bob Fife drove him insane. Fife and Nomitz in the early years kept doing the stories that called for ministers to resign. There was this wave of resignations back when uh, they were a team. Fife, Fife was as annoying to Brian Mulroney as he is to Justin Trudeau. He he just didn't stop. Fife would not be displeased that I'm saying this. 
uh, I was at a, a funeral, actually, about a year or so ago. One of Mulroney's former press secretaries said that one day, um, this isn't the curse of politics, but I'm going to swear here. She was called into the office and Brian Mulroney said to her, call Bob Fife and tell him to fuck right off. <laughs> he said, well, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> and he saw at the at, at the end of the uh, day, he said, you didn't call him and say that. She said, no, I didn't. So during there was a very tense time during Charlottetown. And Charlottetown was getting down to the wire and Mulroney was hosting premiers one at a time up at Harrington Lake. So all the reporters were staked out sitting, it was a pleasant summer day, it wasn't hardship, sitting out at the gate to Harrington Lake waiting for these premiers to come out one by one. And at one point, Bob Ray was in there, and he was in there for quite a while. Bob Ray was then premier of Ontario. And we saw this Jeep coming down the hill um, toward us. Most of the premiers had walked out, but, and Mulrooney is behind the wheel, with Bob Ray at his side. I've got, I love this image. And Mulroney leans out the window and yells at all of us, stand back and give me a clear shot at Fife. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's a yep. great story. Listen, uh, I, 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 I just say, hold on a sec. Oh, First, to I, I got to take a final break here. And we've got, we do have to get to flaws, failures, yeah. and Airbus. Um, in the, in the final couple of minutes, but, uh, let me, uh, let me take this quick break and then we'll be uh, right back. And welcome back. Uh, Peter Mansbridge with Bruce Anderson and Susan Delacourt as we talk about Brian Mulrooney on this special edition of good talk for, uh, this Friday. Um, everybody has flaws. Um, and Brian Mulroney was not uh, shy of flaws himself on a, you know, for a number of things. He spoke out, uh, trusted the media too much on the bus in the, uh, in the 83, 84 days before he became prime minister, um, hadn't set the rules clearly. And Neil McDonald, who was a young reporter with the Ottawa Citizen, wrote some blistering stuff about the, the real Brian Mulroney and what he was saying in the back of the bus about... Uh, uh, we have to say it. Yeah, no who are like an old who are. Bryce Mackesy, <laughs> uh, liberal cabinet minister, had accepted a patronage appointment. Uh, it was ambassador to Ireland, I think it was. And who could have blamed him? Who wouldn't want to be ambassador to Ireland? But nevertheless, Mulroney uh, found out then that if you're going to talk to the media, you better ensure that all the rules are uh, about those discussions are followed. Anyway, there, there were much bigger things to come in terms of flaws and, and errors of judgment. Uh, he never forgave me for my interview with uh, Carl Heinz Schreiber. And uh, Schreiber, I <laughs> challenged Schreiber to tell me exactly how thick was that wad of cash that uh, that you gave Mulroney for uh, his help on, what was it, pizza ovens or something <laughs> that he claimed that it was all about? Um, that, was, that was the Airbus affair, um, which uh, hung around his neck for you know a good number of years and for some people still does. Um, but Mulrooney flaws, when you look at them, uh, Bruce, what were they? Well, I think that was, uh, I think that was the most obvious, um, error in judgment. I, you know, over the years have, uh, moved from seeing it as a kind of a sensational story of a personal failure in judgment, a lapse in judgment, um, 
to uh, uh, a, a really small footnote for me. I understand that other people will will think about it differently, but uh, to me, it didn't really have a bearing on the overall uh, impact that he had on public policy or his um, his life in politics. Uh, and obviously, that's because I knew him and I had ex personal experiences with him, the bulk of which were so positive in terms of my sense of what he was trying to do and why he was trying to do it and what he was motivated by. Uh, so, you know, as I can with um, with pretty much everybody I know, I can overlook um, some some misjudgments. Um uh, you know, I think he he did have that. Uh, the other flaws, I don't know if they're flaws. I mean, I kind of feel like they're the opposite side of the coin to somebody who's who's got a gift of the gab, who's witty, who wants to say things that motivate people that that don't sound like talking points that that break through the clutter. He was good at that. Um, it also meant he said things like "There's no who are like an old her." He loved the conversation. And uh, saying those things that probably made him feel like he was on a bit of a tightrope sometimes, and uh, and you know, and in the in the years after office, I felt like um, he reflected back on all of that and said, "It is all a suit, and and most of it I'm happy with." That's the sense that I had of him, and um, and maybe I'll I'll because uh, I don't know how much time we have peter but i'll finish uh, this part with with a little personal story he had that that one gift that we've seen since with people like bill clinton um physical uh proximity he could lean in he could put an arm on your shoulder and put a hand in your hand and um if it was a room with a lot of other people everybody would notice that this conversation was happening he had he drew the attention of a room and i had this happen with him twice the first was when he was uh, hoping that I would help his party um, prepare for the next election, and uh, so I went to a I went to a meeting where there were a lot of people from the party, and there was some sort of receiving line. Anyway, he was go making his way through the line, and he leaned in uh, when he got to me, and he made a point of spending two or three minutes. I don't even remember what we talked about, but for him, the point was showing everybody else that we were having this conversation. And as I left, someone told me, um, well, that was really important what he did. He wanted everybody to embrace you as somebody who was kind of new to supporting the party. Fast forward 10 or 15 years. Um, I hear he's speaking at a at a big convention in Ottawa that I was also speaking at. And I wasn't able to make it to the beginning of his speech. It was a big room with about 800 people, 1,000 people maybe, big podium at the beginning. I get there about 10 minutes into his speech, and I – kind of slide my way into the last row because um, I don't want to, you know, disrupt his flow or anything like that. He finishes his speech and he's coming down the main uh, aisle and everybody wants to shake his hands and, and whisper words to him and do selfies and everything else. And he does all of that. But then he gets to me and he kind of, he wants to make sure that he pulls me out, puts his arms around me and he says, it's so good to see you again, Bruce. He says, you missed the first half. It was the best half. And I thought, <laughs> how did he see <laughs> me sneak into that room 10 minutes into his speech? But he was that guy. <laughs> um, Susan, uh, Bruce accomplished the feat that he does every week. He gobbled up most of the time we had left. Um, but <laughs> if, 
Give me a closing thought on the, on the flaws. I will, and I'll, I'll take us right back to the beginning. So Airbus, I was, yeah. uh, I without boring the audience, or uh, I was more part of that story than I wanted to be. I was subpoenaed as a witness, uh, in it, and it got ugly. It got really tough. And there was one day, uh, Bob Fife <laughs> pulled me aside and said, there's a really horrible rumor going on about you in this like the Mulroney side is putting out <clears throat> dirt and they've got a, there's ambush crews at your house it was by the way my birthday <laughs> <laughs> um so i couldn't go home and so uh, again if we had longer maybe with wine and stuff i tell you how it, i found out later that brian Mulroney stopped that that it was when Brian Mulroney found out that those were the tactics being used against me, not his, I'm not, he wasn't my biggest fan, but when he found out that was going on, he stepped in to end it. And I never forgot that. That's a, that's an amazing story. Uh, but it under, <laughs> underlines, I guess, what we were talking about. Um, you know, as journalists, you're, you're not fans of anybody in particular. You're trying to give everybody an equal um, shake in terms of the the coverage you give, but as you know, as time moves on and and the, and the figures we're talking about move out of politics, you tend to strike up a different kind of relationship with them. Like I, you know, I've talked to Mulroney, you know, quite a few times since he left office, and usually because I'm looking for help on and guidance on trying to understand a story or understand something that perhaps that that he did, and he's always been. Um, available. He's always made himself available and above and beyond uh, at times as well. You know, he's, um, you know, I, <laughs> my son, who is a political science student at U of T until he graduated a couple of years ago, wrote a paper on free trade and somehow it ended up in front of Brian Mulroney. So of course, what did he do? Ow. He wrote, the, he wrote uh, Will, my son, this letter, a long, a long letter going through different points of it. And it, there was no, he didn't need to do this. This is like, you know, 15 years after he got out of politics. He didn't need a, another fan in terms of my son or try to impress me in some long distance. Well, he did it because he actually believed he wanted to enter that discussion on free trade uh, with my son, a student, right? You know, so for good for him, and he's not alone in that. We've seen examples of that with others who, who've left the scene, uh, but they do take this different kind of relationship on with uh, with the people, and 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 in some cases with the with the media. Um, it's almost certain that we're not going to see, at least in our lifetimes, uh, somebody like Brian Mulroney on the political stage in Canada. You know, I could be surprised. Hopefully, I will be. But uh, at the moment, it doesn't seem that way. It's just not, it's a different era in politics. Good or bad, it's different. Um, I thank you uh, both for your, your thoughts on this. I know there are going to be a lot of pieces that are written over the next couple of days, and people will be reading them. I know that my uh, newsletter uh, tomorrow, The Buzz, I'm going to have some more reflections and, uh, and thoughts from others about, uh, about Brian Mulroney. Uh, and the next few days, I'm sure there's going to be a state funeral, and you're going to hear lots more. Uh, about the 18th Prime Minister of Canada, and I hope this uh, has given you some things to think about in terms of uh, his legacy and his uh, importance on, on the stage. You can catch this if uh, you're listening on 
on Sirius XM or on the podcast. You can also catch it on, uh, uh, you know, F-bombs included on uh, YouTube. <laughs> thank you for that, Susan. Um, Sorry. And thank you for joining us. It's been great. <laughs> Um, Susan, hopefully will join us again next week as Chantel's got one more week to go on her uh, Iceland hike. Uh, That'd be great. Bruce, um, as always, thank you uh, for your uh, contribution to this. I know we've all have our reflections on this guy. We've all had our, our different moments um, covering and discussing and and uh, helping analyze on it with uh, Brian Mulroney over the years. I know in my case, I first met him when he was running for the conservative leadership in the early 1980s. So we've seen a lot. The first time? Yeah. Um, Peter, well, I, that was 76. I've, 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 I've only got 12 seconds left. So unfortunately. Uh, if any of his friends or family are watching this, my deep condolences. Yes, I think all of them. From all the of same. us. Absolutely. And a, a big family. And he was so close to his family. Um and uh, so admired them and was so proud of them. All right, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, We'll talk to you again on Good Talk in seven days. 